Chapter Three of The Uphill Climb by B. M. Bower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter Three, One Way to Drown Sorrow. Ford walked up to the bar with a smile upon his face, which Sam misunderstood, and so met with a conciliatory grin and a hand extended towards a certain round ribbed bottle with a blue and silver label. Ford waved away the bottle and leaned not on the bar, but across it, and clutching Sam by the necktie, slapped him first upon one ear and next upon the other, until he was forced by the tingling of his own fingers to desist. By that time Sam's green necktie was pulled tight just under his nose, and he had swallowed his gum, which, considering the size of the lump, was likely to be the death of him. Ford did not say a word. He permitted Sam to jerk loose and back into a corner, and he watched the swift crimsoning of his ears with a keen interest. Since Sam's face had the pasty pallor of the badly scared, the ears appeared much redder by contrast than they really were. Next, Ford turned his attention to the man beside him, who happened to be Bill. For one long minute, the grim spirit of war hovered just over the two. "'Ah, forget it, Ford,' Bill urged ingratiatingly at last. "'You don't want to lick anybody.' least of all old bill look at them knuckles you couldn't thump a feather bed anyway you got the guilty party when you done slapped sam up to a peak and then knocked the peak off made him swaller his cud too by hokey say sam my old dad used to feed a cow on the bacon rinds when she done lost her cud you try it sam maybe it might help them ears Shove that there trouble-killer over this way, Sammy. And don't look so fierce at your Uncle Bill. He's liable to turn you across his knee and dust your pants proper. He turned again to Ford, scowling at the group and at life in general, while the snow melted upon his broad shoulders and trickled in little hurrying drops down to the nearest jumping-off place. Come, drown your sorrow, Bill advised amiably. Nobody said nothing but Sammy and I'll gamble he wishes he hadn't now. If his counsel was vicious, his smile was engaging, which does not, in this instance, mean that it was beautiful. Ford's fingers closed upon the bottle, and with reprehensible thoroughness he proceeded to drown what sorrow he then possessed. Unfortunately, he straightway produced a fresh supply, after his usual method. In two hours he was flushed and argumentative. In three he had whipped Bill, cause unknown to the chronicler, and somewhat hazy to Ford also after it was all over. By mid-afternoon he had Sammy entrenched in the tiny stronghold where barreled liquors were kept, and scared to the babbling stage. Alec had been put to bed with a gash over his right eye where Ford had pointed his argument with a beer glass, and Big Jim had succumbed to a billiard cue directed first at his most sensitive bunion and later at his head. Ford was not using his fists that day, because even in his whiskey-brewed rage he remembered, oddly enough, his skinned knuckles. Others had come. In fact, the entire male population of Sunset was hovering in the immediate vicinity of the hotel. But none had conquered. There had been considerable ducking to avoid painful contact with flying glasses from the bar, and a few had retreated in search of bandages and liniment. The luckier ones remained as near the storm center as was safe, and expostulated. 
to those ford had but one reply which developed into a sort of war chant discouraging to the peace-loving listeners i'm a rootin tootin shootin fightin son of a gun and a good un ford would declaim and with deadly intent aim a lump of coal billiard ball or glass at some unfortunate individual in his audience hit the nigger and get a cigar you're just hanging around out there till i drink myself to sleep but i'm foolin' you a few i'm watchin' the clock with one eye I take my dose regular and not too frequent. I'm going to kill off a few of these smart boys that have been talking about me and my wife. She's a lady, my wife is. And I'll kill the first man that says she isn't. One cannot, you will understand, be too explicit in a case like this. Not one thousandth part as explicit as Ford was. I'm going to begin on Sam pretty quick he called through the open door. I got him right where I want him. And he stated, with terrible exactness, his immediate intentions towards the bartender. Behind his barricade of barrels, Sam heard and shivered like a gun-shy collie at a turkey shoot, shivered until human nerves could bear no more, and like the collie, he left the storeroom and fled with a yelp of sheer terror. Ford turned just as Sam shot through the doorway into the dining room, and splintered a beer bottle against the casing, glanced solemnly up at the barroom clock, and, retreating to the nearly denuded bar, gravely poured himself another drink, held up the glass to the dusk-filmed window, squinted through it, decided he needed a little more than that, and added another teaspoonful. Then he poured the contents of the glass down his throat as if it were so much water, wiped his lips upon a bar towel, picked a handful of coal from the depleted coal hod, went to the door, and shouted to those outside to produce Sam that he might be killed in an extremely unpleasant manner. The group outside withdrew across the street to grapple with the problem before them. It was obviously impossible for civilized men to sacrifice Sam, even if they could catch him, which they could not. Sam had bolted through the dining room, upset the Chinaman in the kitchen, and fallen over a bucket of ashes in the coal shed in his flight to freedom. He had not stopped at that, but had scurried off up the railroad track. The general opinion among the spectators was that he had, by this time, reached the next station and was hiding in a cellar there. Bill Wright hysterically insisted that it was up to Tom Aldershot, who was a deputy town marshal. Tom, however, was working on the house he hoped to have ready for his prospective bride by Thanksgiving, and hated to be interrupted for the sake of a few broken heads only. He ain't shooting up nobody, he argued from the platform where he was doing inside work on his dining room while the storm lasted. He never does cut loose with his gun when he's drunk. If I arrested him, I'd have to take him clear up to Garbin. It ain't got time, and it wouldn't be nothing but a charge of disturbing the peace when I got him there. You ought to have a jail in sunset, like I've been telling you right along. Can't expect a man to stop his work just to take a man to jail. Not for anything less than murder, anyhow. Some member of the deputation hinted a doubt of his courage, and Tom flushed. I ain't a scared of him, he snorted indignantly. I should say not. I'll go over and make him behave as a man and a citizen but I ain't going to arrest him as an officer when there ain't no place to put him. Tom reluctantly threw down his hammer, 
grumbling because they would not wait till it was too dark to drive nails, but must cut short his working day, and went over to the hotel to quell Ford. Ingress by way of the front door was obviously impracticable. The marshal ducked around the corner just in time to avoid a painful meeting with a billiard ball. Mother McGrew had piled two tables against the dining room door, and braced them with a mop, and stubbornly refused to let Tom touch the barricade either as man or officer of the law. "'Well, if I can't get in, I can't do nothing,' stated Tom, with philosophic calm. "'He's tearing up the whole place, and he must have found them extra billiard balls Mike had under the bar, and is throwing em away,' wailed Mrs. McGrew. "'And he's drinking and not paying. The damage that man is doing it would take a year's profits to make up. "'You gotta do something, Tom Aldershot. "'You that calls yourself a marshal. "'Swore to protect the citizens of Sunset? "'No, sir, I ain't a-gonna open this door, neither. "'I'm trying to save the dishes, if you want to know. "'I ain't gonna let my cups and plates follow the glasses in there. "'A town full of men, and you stand back and let one crazy.' "'Tom had heard Mrs. McGrew voice her opinion "'of the male population of Sunset on certain previous occasions.' He left her at that point and went back to the group across the street. At length, Sandy, whose imagination had been developed somewhat beyond the elementary stage by his reading of romantic fiction, suggested luring Ford into the liquor room by the simple method of pretending an assault upon him by way of the storeroom window, which would be barred from without by heavy planks. Secure in his belief in Ford's friendship for him, Sandy even volunteered to slam the door shut upon Ford and lock it with the padlock which guarded the room from robbery. Tom took a chew of tobacco, decided that the ruse might work, and donated the planks for the window. It did work up to a certain point. Ford heard a noise in the storeroom and went to investigate, caught a glimpse of Tom Aldershot apparently about to climb through the little window, and hurled a hammer in considerable vituperation at the opening whereupon Sandy scuttled in and slammed the door, according to his own plan, and locked it. There was a season of frenzied hammering outside, and after that Sunset breathed freer, and discussed the evils of strong drink, and washed down their arguments by copious draughts of the stuff they maligned. Later, they had to take him out of the storeroom, because he insisted upon knocking the bungs out of all the barrels and letting the liquor flood the floor, and Mike McGrew's wife objected to the waste on the ground that whiskey cost money. They fell upon him in a body, bundled him up, hustled him over to the ice house, and shut him in, and within ten minutes he kicked three boards off one side and emerged breathing fire and brimstone like the dragons of old. He had forgotten about wanting to kill Sam. He was willing, nay, anxious, to murder every male human in Sunset. They did not know what to do with him after that. They liked Ford when he was sober, and so they hated to shoot him, though that seemed the only way in which they might dampen his enthusiasm for blood. Tom said that if he failed to improve his temper by the next day, he would try and land him in jail, though it did seem rigorous treatment for so common a fault as getting drunk. Meanwhile, they kept out of his way as well as they could, and dodged missiles and swore. Even that was becoming more and more difficult, except the swearing because Ford developed a perfectly diabolic tendency to empty every store that contained a man, so that it became no uncommon sight to see a back door belching forth hurrying figures at the most unseasonable times. No man could lift a full glass that night and feel sure of drinking the contents undisturbed, 
whereat sunset grumbled while it dodged it may have been nine o'clock before the sporadic talk of a jail crystallized into a definite project which it was unanimously agreed could not too soon be made a reality they built the jail that night by the light of bonfires which the slightly wounded kept blazing in the intervals of standing guard over the workers ready to give warning in case ford appeared as a war cloud on the horizon there were fifteen able-bodied men and they worked fast with ford's war chant in the saloon down the street as an incentive to speed they erected it close to tom aldershot's house because the town borrowed lumber from him and they wanted to save carrying and because it was tom's duty to look after the prisoner and he wanted the jail handy so that he need not lose any time from his house building they built it strong and they built it tight without any window save a narrow slit near the ceiling they heated it by setting a stove outside under a shelter where tom could keep up the fire without the risk of going inside and ran pipe in a burrowed drum through the jail high enough so that ford could not kick it and to discourage any thought of suicide by hanging they sealed the place tightly with tom's matched flooring of oregon pine tom did not like that and said so but the citizens of sunset nailed it on and turned a deaf ear to his complaints chill dawn spread over the town dulling the light of the fires and bringing into relief the sodden tramplings in the snow around the jail with the sharply defined paths leading to tom aldershot's lumber pile the watchers had long before sneaked off to their beds for not a sign of ford had they seen since midnight the storm had ceased early in the evening and all the sky was glowing crimson with the coming glory of the sun the jail was almost finished up on the roof three crouching figures were nailing down strips of brick-red building paper as a fair substitute for shingles and on the side nearest town the marshal and another were holding a yard-wide piece flat against the wall with fingers that tingled in the cold while bill wright fastened it into place with shingle nails driven through tin discs the size of a half dollar ford partly sober after a sleep on the billiard table in the hotel barroom heard the hammering wondered what industrious soul was up and doing carpenter work at that unseemly hour and after helping himself to a generous eye-opener at the deserted bar found his cap and went over to investigate he was much surprised to see bill wright working and smiled to himself as he walked quietly up to him through the soft step-muffling snow what you doing bill building a chicken house he asked a quirk of amusement at the corner of his lips bill jumped and came near swallowing a nail so near that his eyes bulged at the feel of it next to his palate tom aldershot dropped his end of the strip of paper which tore with a dull sound of ripping and remarked that he would be damned next craned up on the roof and startled eyes peered down like chipmunks from a tree someone up there dropped a hammer which hit bill on the head but no one said a word yak like you were nervous this morning ford observed in a tone which indicates a conscious effort at good-humored ignorance working on a bet or what what snarled bill sarcastically i wished ford next time you bowl up you pick on somebody that ain't too good a friend to fight back i'm getting tired by hokey what did i lick you again bill ford's smile was sympathetic to a degree that's too bad now 
Next time you want to hunt a hole and crawl into it, Bill. I don't want to hurt you, but it seems like I kind of got to have it. You'll have to excuse me. He hunched his shoulders at the chill of the morning and walked around the jail, inspecting it with half-hearted interest. What is this, anyway? he inquired of Tom. Smokehouse? It's a jail, snapped Tom, to put you into if you don't watch your dodgers. What in thunder do you want to carry on like you did last night for? And then go and sober up just when we got a jail built to put you into. That ain't no way for a man to do. I'll leave it to Bill, if it is. I've a darn good mind to swear out a warrant anyway, Ford, and pinch you for disturbing the peace. That's what I ought to do, all right. Tom beat his hands about his body and glared at Ford with his ultra-official scowl. All right, if you want to do it, Ford's tone embellished the reply with a you-take-the-consequences sort of indifference. Only I'd advise you never to turn me loose again if you do lock me up in this coop once. I know I wouldn't have worked all night on the thing if I'd known you was going to sleep it off, Bill complained with deep reproach in his watery eyes. I made sure you was due to keep things agitated around here for a couple of days at the very least, or I never would have drove a nail by a hokey. It's a darn shame to have a nice new jail and nobody to use it on, sympathized Ford, his eyes half-closed and steely. I'd like to help you out all right. Maybe i better kill you, Bill. They might stretch a point and call it manslaughter, and I could use the bounty to help pay a lawyer, if it ever come to a head as a trial, whereat Bill almost wept. Ford pushed his hands deep into his pockets and walked away, sneering openly at Bill, the marshal, the jail, and the town which owned it, and at wives and matrimony and the world which held all these vexations. He went straight to the shack, drank a cup of coffee, and packed everything he could find that belonged to him and was not too large for easy carrying on horseback, and when Sandy, hovering uneasily around him, asked questions, he told him briefly to go off in a corner and lie down, which advice Sandy understood as an invitation to mind his own affairs. Like Bill, Sandy could have wept at the ingratitude of this man. But he asked no more questions, and he made no more objections. He picked up the story of the unpronounceable count who owned the castle in the Black Forest, and had much tribulation and no joy until the last chapter. And when Ford went out, with his battered sole leather suitcase and his rifle in its pigskin case, he kept his pale eyes upon his book and refused even a grunt in response to Ford's grudging. So long, Sandy. End of chapter 3